Welcome to the HexDevs podcast. I'm your host, Tiago. And I'm your co-host, Stephanie. Today we have a very special guest, Brian Senemand. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for coming. We're very happy to have you here with us. And uh, Brian knows a lot about many things. He knows a lot about Erlang and software development and BSD and philosophy and psychology and so many interesting things. And I think our listeners will enjoy the conversation. So thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Um, sure. So I, I started programming when I was uh, very young on um, DOS and later Windows machines. And uh, I went to university for computer science for a while. And uh, also I studied philosophy, psychology. Eventually I got uh, into a career as a software developer. So a lot of web development, um, like full stack, front end, back end. So, um, I got started with Erlang when I had a, well I got really started when I had a chance to um, work on a, a little startup. We were, it was called uh, Makeup Stash. And there were three of us, and we were making uh, a makeup application, a web application. And um, I really liked Erlang, and so I decided that uh, we should write the backend in Erlang. Um, so this was uh, the backend involved uh, a web backend, but also uh, an ETL pipeline and a scraper, so a web scraper to scrape makeup products from all the different makeup sites on the internet and then compile them into one uh, one database that is then used as the backend for the website. And so was it like an e-commerce e thing or was it more like um, tracking prices and stuff? Uh, it was more like providing user features, not prices. Um, we were looking to improve uh, the experience of organizing makeup, shop, shopping for it, looking for it, and sharing it uh, with a lot of social features and um, sort of a grab bag of features like inventory features um, and also information. Just um, like for example, if there's a limited edition makeup, maybe having some information ab about that uh, that is not otherwise available on the internet. It's just because it gets taken down um, cool. And why did you use Erlang for that? Well, I guess I I liked Erlang. I wanted to use it more. That's probably the true reason. But it was it was a good fit for s for many of our backend problems uh, because they are distributed problems. So we were uh, creating multiple servers that had to do all of the scraping and Erlang is great at orchestrating that. Um, another, I made a big use of the Amnesia database which is the Erlang distributed database and so that was something that uh, not a lot of people do anymore but those distributed features made it easier to process all of this different data coming in to deduplicate it and to uh, do transactions on it and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. 
how many sites were were you tracking do you know um well we had a a target of it was it was hundreds but we didn't do them all before the uh, startup folded um, but um, so we targeted the biggest ones first which were the slowest um, so it was just a, it was just a handful like 10 but um, we had a system that could work on a whole number of them and uh, you could it could also spin up different nodes with different IPs or regions and so on like that for uh, each website uh, so it, it the the process of scraping was also sort of based around chromium to reverse engineer the web apis that the uh, e-commerce sites are using and then get better data that way and and also to just be a lot less work than other types of scraping that read the html so by doing this we could call the uh, for example walmart api they they were using um, redux at the time and we could just call JavaScript functions on their Redux store to get their data, which made the programming model a lot simpler. Uh, so um, injecting JavaScript that does those API requests from inside their own browser, and then um, uh, ex put exporting that into the Erlang system, which then deals with the data uh, and uh, combines that, transforms that, and uh, that all you know works in a big cluster yeah that's pretty cool because i had to do that something something similar in the past i did it in ruby i think but it was a little annoying because my jobs would fail all the time because like i was i would access this specific site and the site would be offline or something would happen like the site would be a little different and then my my job failed and then i would notice that Day later, a day later or later and I didn't have supervisors or anything yeah. so. so that that was a big part of Erlang that just made it really easy um, you didn't have to other other scraping platforms will have all kinds of supervisors that have been custom built but uh, in this case it just comes with Erlang so um, the jobs could be retried very easily and it's not just that even the website might be down, but in this case, you like since we were using Chromium to inject this JavaScript, Chromium itself would crash into millions of different ways, and uh, Erlang was able to wrap that and restart that in a way that I think probably makes this kind of rich scraping very hard uh, in other contexts. Um, but also the jobs themselves, we have a simple distributed queue, like it's, it's very easy to write a distributed queue in Erlang and so when a job fails on one node, you don't know why it has failed on that node. It could be because that node is in the wrong country. Well, another, another element of this is uh, all of these different makeup sites present different websites depending on the country you're coming from. So if you want to get the correct information, you need to have scrapers that use nodes from all those different places or proxies at least. And then you can have all kinds of reasons for failure. So you want a system that handles the failures and retries them in other contexts very, very nicely. Uh, and Erlang comes built in with these types of uh, 
like super like the supervisor for example that you mentioned is it will wrap any kind of failure and retry things and it can easily you can easily migrate a job to another node uh, or another you know country or something like that you never you never really lose anything so did you have other options at the time or did everyone agree to use Erlang? Um, well, it was just me working on the back end, so oh, I was okay. lucky <laughs> that I could do whatever I wanted. That made um, it easy. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I was mostly looking at some of the heavy duty f uh, scraping frameworks as other alternatives. But uh, at the time, they were all based around HTML scraping, and I knew that I wanted to do a rich JavaScript based scraping. Mm -hmm. um, so. I wanted a way to, to, well, run a web browser, and I um, I did it with Firefox as well. Yeah, I knew that from the beginning. I knew that I didn't we I didn't have a lot of manpower. Um, I didn't have a lot of people to, to write um, a million little detailed, scraping scripts that break every time the site slightly changes, every time there's a small difference in the HTML. So I wanted to go surface uh, level below the HTML to the underlying data model and access that to make make it more robust and easier but this meant I needed a JavaScript runtime I needed to be rendering the sites and so um, this meant I need to run uh, Chromium or Firefox and I didn't know beforehand but it turned out that neither of those are gonna do this job for you without major problems uh, so I was using WebDriver because that's what was available. So WebDriver is an API that it's a it's a generic API browser independent API that lets uh, a program control the functions of a website, like such for example, clicking, scrolling, and uh, loading and reloading and navigating. So this um, I think today people you can use different things like Chrome headless. But uh, at the time, the WebDriver API was the way people were doing it. Like, that's what Selenium would make use of, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this API is very buggy. It's not well implemented on any browser. And there are many things, places where it fails or it hangs. And then each browser has its own major bugs with this stuff. Uh, it's possible that they browser vendors don't really want to make scraping easier so they don't they don't really want browser automation to be that easy so maybe they um, don't invest too heavily in making it very easy but um, you also want to be able to run these uh, sort of headless with as few resources as possible so you don't have to have really big servers um, so for that I um, ran them in uh, I used a an X program for for Xorg that was able to disconnect the display. Um, so there was a display I could connect to it to see it remotely if I needed to, but they were able to run without having to um, run multiple uh, instances of Chromium without because um, this was this was before Chrome headless. So uh, I was cutting off the head uh, using. Uh, features of, of the X operating system. Yeah, it's interesting. You were you, you were running this all of this stuff by yourself and doing 
all the backend development and scraping a bunch of sites that randomly fail and I see that Erlang is really good for that sort of problem and you see many companies using Erlang as sort of a secret weapon like to do these complicated things these things that are very finicky like very easy to break but they do it uh, very well uh, in a very performant way in a distributed way like you have companies like WhatsApp doing that like running billions and billions of messages every day and so why do you think is is why do you think that happens like is Erlang like a secret weapon to do this crazy stuff that because everybody needs to do something like that right everybody needs a system that needs to handle failure and Erlang is so good for that, right? Yeah, the, the one thing that Erlang really excels at that nobody else comes close to is, is handling failure, fault tolerance, and reliability. And that's because it, it deals with fault tolerance at the lowest possible level, uh, the level of processes, of these like Erlang-specific processes. Uh, and so I, I, it's a secret weapon for reliability and so in that you know you're never going to do better than this system at least there's nothing out, out there that competes uh, it is still a niche language too and that keeps a lot of companies away and companies can duplicate the scalability sometimes but they can't duplicate the reliability and nobody's come close and um, the reliability is there because the system was designed from the very beginning to have uh, uh, reliability, to have massive concurrency across multiple nodes, and their their model of error handling is fundamentally different than every other programming language. Uh, the Erlang philosophy is that you always need a second system to handle the errors of the not maybe not a second system. But one th when one thing has an error, you need something else to handle the error. That and that's the driving fault tolerance philosophy and that applies to so in, er, in the Erlang world that applies to hardware as well as software at every sort of layer of the stack so again the Erlang philosophy which is which uh, Joe Armstrong would famously say let it crash is that to really handle all errors you need two computers the computer that error reports what it can to the other error to the other computer and then the computer that's handling the error decides what to do, which can by default mean restarting it or returning to a known good state. And uh, so this means removing error handling boilerplate from the happy path, uh, embracing runtime errors, and guaranteeing that it won't take down the system because when any part of the program enters an unknown state, there's always another part in a known good state that can return that part to a known good state, that can return the error. So. Uh, in a sequential program or a typical sequential program, <coughs> uh, your try catch you have these try catch statements that wrap up all of these other functions, and those try catch statements are executing in the same process, the same context. A bug there will crash uh, the error handling code just as much as it will crash the regular happy path code. But in er Erlang, you put your error handling code in a different process that is supervising the process that has the happy path code. And that's the fundamental philosophy behind Erlang's fault tolerance, and they built that in 
the lowest level, which means an Erlang system can be made ex to be extremely fault tolerant. And like it's very common to work at a company that restarts your server every day and some stuff mm -hmm. like that because we can't like really handle the failures failures very well and we just assume that the prog program will crash but we have no good means of detecting the failures and making it to fault tolerant and you start seeing all of the you start seeing a bunch of code that handles this kind of stuff and it's so complicated like you're drawing a sea of complexity but if you look at some Erlang code like everything is kind of there for you like everything is already implemented uh, so, so it's it's interesting that some some people don't realize that they're building a distributed system they need fault tolerance and they kind of re-implement everything from scratch because they maybe they don't know about Erlang maybe it's because Erlang is not a very popular um, yeah. language you know so how can we make that better how can we change that <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how you would make it popular. Um, they've certainly tried. Uh. Yeah, I, I was going just to add that I don't have a lot of years of experience, but I've heard a lot of people say, you know, this language will be the language of the future. But I've never heard anyone say anything about Erlang, except when some friends uh, back in Brazil started uh, learning Elixir. Then I heard them say, oh, it's like it's built on top of Erlang. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and that's when, that was the first time that I heard about Erlang. So I'm also curious too, given the fact that Erlang can handle all of that, why is not so popular as well? Like, Well, there, there's definitely some hard parts about Erlang that make Elixir probably more appealing. Um, like, for example, um, you know, a lot of people program very heavily out of Stack Overflow or Google and being a niche language, but not just a niche language, but an unusual language that works differently than other languages means that you can't just Google for the answers. You probably won't, you probably won't get one. Uh, you, when I program Erlang, I'm spending all of my research time in the Erlang documentation mm -hmm. and reference manuals and a few of the, the a few of the books in the ecosystem but um, I'm not you're not gonna find a lot of sort of pre pre-built solutions on like Stack Overflow or in you're not gonna be able to Google all of your errors and, and stuff like that uh, so and that might be just because of the size of the community uh, and maybe that's where Elixir can make a big difference or, or also maybe just by the Elixir people investing in in more elaborate uh, documentation and tutorials and stuff like that. I mean, uh, for other languages now, you can watch a YouTube video to do anything, but I don't think you're going to find that in for for a lot of things in Erlang. You have to sort of figure it out yourself. Um, another another part though is it's just uh, it's an old language. It's from it's from the 80s. It was started in 1985, so they're coming at this from a very old school perspective and and to it, it still is very conservatively run language with a lot of backwards compatibility, uh, not necessarily. But jumping. that's good, right? <laughs> that's good. Backwards compatibility is a good thing. 
yeah, it's good for maintaining the old systems. It's good for your own code because that means in the future it's still going to work. Uh, but maybe it means that getting the latest flashy uh, stuff is not going to not going to happen. So one of the common criticisms of Erlang would be that you know maybe its its package manager doesn't have uh, as much stuff as npm or that um, its um, you know libraries for Docker or something aren't uh, as elaborate. You can get very far in other languages just by using other people's code that they've shared, and you're not going to find that in Erlang so much. Like you, you definitely get a lot of libraries, but it, it's just not to the extent of other of other systems. Um, you, you also, it's not it's not that easy to get into because you have to think differently to do concurrency oriented programming. So even from your very first day in Erlang, you're already doing concurrent programming, and that's not true for any other language. Every other language you can spend years just doing sequential programming, never doing any concurrency, and that means you never have to think about it. And when people do think about concurrency, often it's solving some kind of multi-threading problem, writing a multi-threaded algorithm, and then they realize it's very hard and they have to they have to learn to think about their code differently. And in Erlang, you're going to have to do that at the beginning because it it sort of uh, forces a concurrent model on you if you want to get anything done. So that that can be a hard. Um, I can maybe that can put off some people. Mm-hmm. Another thing, though, that everybody cites is the syntax. It's a, a very unusual syntax. It's based on Prolog. It comes out of mm-hmm. uh, different paradigms, and it ha- it's based on English too. It uses commas and periods as they're used in English, a comma to separate one clause or one phrase in a sentence and a period to end a sentence or to end a statement um, or like to end a function, for example. And so uh, a lot of people find that just pretty weird. Whereas, mo- And when you, when you do program in Erlang or another language that is very different, you realize how similar almost all the other ones are how they follow the same types of syntax. So Erlang has a different syntax and not everybody's going to like like that syntax. So do you know why Joe Armstrong uh, designed the syntax like that? The syntax was mostly by Mike Williams, oh. who is uh, one of the other three creators. The three creators were uh, Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding and Mike Williams. Or no wait, it was it by Mike or was it by Robert? It was by Robert, I think. <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't so much Joe, but there there's a maybe it was all of them. But there was there's a lot of complicated history about all of those details of the syntax. And um they defend it. They still defend it. They think that there were good good reasons behind it. And it is very simple once you once you understand it. It's simple, it's short. Uh a a, a big part of the syntax is pattern matching, which I think most people would agree is a really a positive thing. Uh, and it's used absolutely everywhere. It's used in case statements, for example. It's used as function signatures. Uh, it's used for all, all variable assignment. And um, so pattern matching comes, that's based on the prologue history. They're originally they wrote, th- their first version was a kind of a prologue but then they found that those features weren't quite as popular 
among the developers who, at Ericsson who were uh, developing on, on the early Erlang. And most of the prologue features have gone away, but pattern matching is the one that uh, has, has stuck around. Uh, I can't remember all the reasons for all the the little syntax things, but there. But um, I think it's Robert. He Robert Birding. He definitely still defends all of those things, and you can see some interesting videos of him talking about why he thinks that this syntax is a really big positive. And I think Erlang code is very easy to read once you know it. Um, I've I've dipped into tons of other people's source code in Erlang and. Part of it is the pure functional nature of it that it, I've found it very easy to follow and to and to edit, um, but the um, the syntax as well makes things very straightforward. I think I know that prologue is good for like al automated planning problems and logic and stuff like that, but Erlang doesn't have any anything related to that. But Prologue doesn't have anything related to fault tolerance or process or anything, so it's 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 interesting to know that heritage of Erlang, because Prologue is a very different language too, but it's also very powerful for the things that it's made to do, like logic and, and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's cool. And well, imagine like our listeners will be interested in learning Erlang and so how how someone should get started with the language what are the most important fundamentals that you need to learn in order to start doing Erlang development uh, well you definitely I would say it's a case where you don't want to just dive in you want to read a book because you need to be introduced to the concepts because uh, it's concurrency oriented programming that's what they call it and it's a different way of thinking about your program. You have to think about, you, you think about your program as modeling a bunch of concurrent actors in the world, and then you think about how they interact. And that's, and there are a bunch of books that will walk you through it. There's uh, Joe Armstrong's books, of course, there, but then uh, the really popular one that's available for free on the internet is called uh, Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good, A Beginner's Guide by, uh, by Fred Hebert from Quebec, and uh, that one is a really well-written, sort of gentle introduction that walks you through all of the uh, core parts of the language and gets you to think about Erlang in the way that you you need to. In a it's a different way. So it's, I think just reading the book um, can be very enlightening because it's such a different paradigm uh, that. It gives you a new perspective on how programming can be done, even if you never actually use Erlang. We're just reading even the, the first few chapters of that book, so that's that's probably the best place to start. And then there's uh, you know s many other books about Erlang, which go into all kinds of detail uh, at different levels of uh, advancement. And uh, most of the people in in the space, like the professionals working in the space, they're they're looking at super scalable, super fault tolerant systems. So billions of of users and stuff like that, and th that's where they're concerned with. And so it's m most of the books and stuff are are for a very professional audience, um, a very advanced audience. Um, but 
especially now with Elixir, there's a lot more opportunity for small small companies or for individuals or for you know anybody just getting started even or w web developers to uh, also use make use of these powerful features. So I think that a good way to try something new is to find a, an open source project, for example, to contribute. Do you know any open source project that would be nice for beginners in Erlang? Um, there's there's plenty. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head what would be a good one to contribute to, but um, you know, uh, all all. All the sort of big commonly used um, libraries are open source and would accept contributions. Um, some of the, the big ones that come to mind are uh, the Cowboy web server, which is very heavily used web server. Um, I mean, I think Elixir has many good examples, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but I, I would have to you know, um, think about it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. And yeah, so something funny that happened today is that <laughs> we were having a hackathon and Brian won the hackathon by doing an Erlang project. And he was trying to like make the the project a little better by using Erlang and he won the prize. And this like this is something that I want to know is how do you convince other people? How do you convince your manager that using Erlang is, is the right way to, to do things? Do you have to like want a hackathon or something in to be able to do that? What do you need to do? <laughs> I don't know. You get, get lucky. I mean, um, my, my manager seems very um, open to the idea of Erlang, but that wasn't for me. I think it's because he watched a bunch of Joe Armstrong's videos on YouTube. So maybe that's the secret. Get a uh, <laughs> get get them exposed to some of the things, the benefits that Erlang can provide, why it's different, and uh, how it can make a difference for delivering for for delivering excellent software. Um, uh, I I don't know what else you could do. I suppose you could advocate for it or just explain it to people. And, and then there's all of the success stories. There's a lot of interesting examples of big successes using Erlang that seem seem like seem like it punches above its weight. Like very few developers achieving really big things. And we've seen enough of those now. I think it's a trend. So by listening to what we have been discussing, I I wonder if there would be a scenario where Erlang wouldn't be the best tool, for example. Can you think of of some example? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's got a learning curve to it. So, uh, for many sort of normal tasks that don't involve concurrency or that don't need don't need fault tolerance, it's easy to think uh, that that there would be you know a better a better language ecosystem to do many tasks in but there, there are some things that do use a lot of concurrency that it's not for um, so that the big example there's uh, like scientific computing which needs to have a lot of optimized it's using concurrency to, to optimize algorithms to run faster but that's not the type of concurrency Erlang does 
Erlang does command and control concurrency, uh, operating a massively distributed system uh, efficiently and to scale, uh, not to make the most efficient use of hardware, which is um, what scientific computing is looking for. It would be very easy to write those algorithms uh, in Erlang, but they wouldn't perform well because you need to use threading, basically. And Erlang's concurrency model is based on isolated processes. You, you can have shared memory between processes when you want it, but it wouldn't be up to that standard. Uh, and it's, it's definitely not a language where you write hardware optimizations, uh, where you're, you know, um, cutting your data into little bits to fill the cache perfectly and stuff like that. That's, that's something that Erlang is too high level for that. And other languages have libraries that do that for you already, so. Um, then for the non-problems that don't involve concurrency, well, as aside from the library support, I mean, some, some problems you probably don't want to do in a pure functional language like this either. It's, it's, it's very opinionated, and it doesn't allow you to mutate state, for example. So if uh, your problem has that type of, of property, then maybe it wouldn't be a good fit. But you can always wrap some other programs using Erlang, right? So I know that this card is doing Elixir right now, and they needed to optimize parts of their system, and they're using Rust for that. So you can wrap the Rust part with Elixir and Erlang using NIFs and ports and stuff like that. Do, do, do you yeah. know about that? Yeah, so Erlang was designed to wrap C from the very beginning because uh, Ericsson, when they were making their, their hardware, like their big switches, they needed Erlang to drive low-level hardware. And uh, they wrote the drivers in C, and then they controlled them from Erlang. Uh, and so to make this easier, they, uh, yeah, they created the thing that you mentioned called ports, so that's basically wrap anything in an Erlang process, control it like an Erlang process, and uh, you get all the safety of the Erlang system. Erlang will handle the restarts, it'll handle configuration, it can handle data transfer between those components, but then those components itself can do the, the work that needs to be optimized. So uh, a lot of these uh, big Erlang shops, they get a lot of mileage out of having an Erlang system that controls C specifically wraps C a lot, but um, but Rust is becoming very popular to wrap for the same reason, and uh, the port system makes it very easy. And if you want to go even faster, there's what you, you mentioned as well, the NIFS, which stands for Natively Implemented Function, and this is where you would compile your C code, for example, right into the Erlang virtual machine, so it would run uh, as fast as possible. But then you don't get the safety guarantees of the ports that of wrapping it into a process because uh, so then if there's some severe error in your uh, your compiled C code, it could crash the VM. But uh, it's it's an option for people who aren't worried about that. Yeah, I feel like Rust is, is a very good fit, a very good match because it's a safe language, but it's also a very fast language. So. It's an interesting use of Erlang and Rust. Yeah, I think they, they go really well together. It's uh, conceptually and uh, that kind of a system where you can do your uh, 
all of your higher level glue code and your distribution code and your error handling in a you know something like Erlang uh, well Erlang which provides like a lot of these fault tolerance and so on and then you can do your really optimized code wrapped up like that and you can still get a, the value of having that be distributed because uh, Erlang can provide that to the Rust code so I think it's a really nice combination and uh, it, it really makes an unbeatable system when you put them all together but then you still have to convince your manager and your team that you you want to use it and it's the right fit you know and then like I, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot like how do you convince people to adopt a language or a tool uh, because like sometimes you know it's the good fit you 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 have the experience to to see that but other people they can't see it they don't have maybe they don't have the experience or maybe they have different opinions and it's very hard to convince them and so you try to like slowly convince them and per persuade them but it's it's a challenge you know but I I remember that there was a panel discussion on at the polyglot conference right and I remember that some people said that why it was so hard for people that are like in the management positions accept those languages that are not so popular it's because they think that will it will be hard to hire people in the future or they are thinking okay you can do that but if if or when you leave who's going to take care of that and then we're going to redo everything so i think that th i think that this is this may influence that in some way but i don't know it's just something that i i remember which it, w it would be a problem really like if it is a it's not something so popular not a lot of people know it and you need to get some time to get used to it. It might be a uh, a barrier for those type of languages or tools to be accepted, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And uh, that maybe is why people should pick languages that uh, developers really like and they like to learn, they're excited to learn and that have a lot of interesting features that they, uh, so they have fun while they learn it. And, then more people can can learn mm. the language at your company. Uh, you don't necessarily have to hire for it, but uh, yeah, I think it's a real it's a real concern for sure. Um, I suppose the more people you have that know a particular language, the easier it gets for the other people in your company to learn it. And um, I think Erling's an example where um, a lot of people really like learning it and. Because it's so functional, it also means that it's possible to contribute without knowing a lot, uh, to contribute to a team. Um, maybe not on you know the the big like hard parts of it, but it's 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 safe to get started when you have a lot of pure functions, when you have a lot of fault tolerance and so on. And the fault tolerance also makes it a lot more fun to deploy and things like that. You don't you're not so worried uh, like you are in other in other languages, there's less of a brutal culture of uh, quality control that's, you know, 
uh, everyone's always worried about breaking something. But I think it's also easier to manage a, a, a project, a Erlang project maybe, because well, you need less people, right? So the system will be easier to manage and it's not going to break easily. And so sometimes you see companies hiring a bunch of people to write a bunch of code that it's that is maybe unnecessary depending on the tools you're using and so maybe like you're just creating more problems and more work for yourself yeah. if you choose the ra the wrong tool for the job so something that i think about a lot and i don't know how to solve that but um, i think one thing that would make a erlang system a lot easier to manage is how it's forces modularized code on to the the team like it it's so opinionated that y you know you can only use uh, these sort of tightly controlled uh, pure functions and everything is in uh, these modules which are which sort of s separate out the code very nicely there's not a lot of you don't have a lot of these complicated spaghetti code interdependencies it just doesn't doesn't happen uh, and I think that modularization makes managing it a lot easier uh, for example you know you can always create a new module to try to improve some other module and those things can it's so easy to just try to swap one in for the other and to test that and uh, to do you, you know like the uh, dynamic testing on the system to see how things are working so I think it, it makes manage it it solves what are organizational problems in other languages that th they just wouldn't come up in an Erlang system uh, in particular with the way that it because when they designed the language, they were also thinking about scaling the team. They were thinking about scaling to thousands of programmers. And so they put things in it that force the code to work sort of independently. Um, a big one is just the whole functional paradigm to begin with and all the functional libraries. But it's also the module system and that the way that all these modules can be loaded and unloaded uh, separately and they, the way they communicate with each other or interact it's uh, it uh, provides a lot of organization and uh, sanity, and I think there it makes things that you see go wrong in other code bases of complex interdependencies and all the state getting carried around that becomes uh, uh, like a noose. That just can't happen in, in an Erlang system. I mean, unless you really try. You see many people doing microservices now as a way to decouple parts of the system, make them separate make them work together in a nice way but then you also see a lot of uh, distributed monoliths and a lot of like a lot of problems related to that so you have like a bunch of microservices and you can't really manage all of them you need some orchestration layer that you have to build yourself and the code base becomes so complicated and so complex and all the interdependencies between the microservices are usually not very explicit you know and then if you want to refactor them it becomes a nightmare because you have 20 different repositories and you know many interactions between them and then you have to implement some form of transaction 
transactional guarantees and all that stuff is super hard but people don't seem to think about that like they just say oh microservice let's do microservices for everything but there's an overhead there and I feel like uh, if you know Erlang and you do it properly you can make code decoupled you can s do your little services there and you have some nice guarantees and you can do distributed transactions like you, you told me some time ago like you can do some interesting stuff with Erlang yeah I, I hear a lot of people justifying microservices based on organizational issues like for example if uh, if we if we don't if we do a monolith then people will write spaghetti code because they're able to because the code is in the same repo the code is in the same service so then they're gonna just they're gonna do all the spaghetti stuff so the way we uh, so then they say this is so then they say we can fix that by making them completely separate programs these microservices but then so that maybe it's true that they won't do spaghetti code like that but now they there's there's just huge overhead to those microservices and they, they just make like small bowls of pasta yeah <laughs> not a bunch of spaghetti <laughs> but also they can split you can split the microservices in a way that is a poorly designed system and it, and then and then no one was willing to go back and, and fix that so you have a you have a like a distributed monolith for example you have a one microservice that you have t you have two microservices and each one is like half of another one and if it if the code isn't very carefully divided to these microservices you have other big issues and then you end up coming up with all of these insane workarounds to try to uh, to wrangle all that and uh, you know it, it and and then the other justification is to make things scalable but well Erlang shows that you can have things in the same repo and you can have things in the same code base but still have them decoupled still have them scalable um, and I and I guess a lot of people would say well sure you can decouple things make them scalable in any language but I guess with Erlang because of the way the module system works and the all of the functions you it's in the processes uh, it's just gonna be a lot harder to write a big spaghetti monster uh, but you also get your scalability you get your um, modularization so uh, I think scalability is not a good excuse for microservices it's like I think microservices are an organizational tool about different teams working on different code bases and and they're being confused as a technical solution but um, there there are many other there are many other technical ways to solve it that involve a lot less overhead and that that also have fewer pitfalls uh, so what would you like to see in the future for Erlang? Is anything that you think is missing in the language? Or I think there are do like there are domains that don't have a, a presence. So you know you you know you don't have like React tools at least that I know of. I haven't looked recently to manage uh, you know a, a web application from an Erlang backend. So there's plenty of sort of libraries that that could be added. Um, the language itself, I, I'm not sure if I have uh, strong opinions on that. Um, I think it does what it needs to do well. They keep improving it all the time, and they've 
they add little changes with every release but they're always very cautious um, I think uh, probably mostly just around the, uh, the you know the community like growing the community getting more uh, help documents out there more tutorials and stuff like that um, maybe getting maybe improving the the documentation to to make it easier for new people like with more examples um, with more uh, elaborate elaboration on technical concepts for example um, I suppose there's other things that they could do like well the amnesia database is a really cool thing but it's very old it's very crafty and they could you know they could completely update that I don't think that's gonna happen um, but it would be really cool if they sort of picked up that development and brought it like like they could add SQL to it for example they could um, bring out a lot of these quality of life features that other systems have and that th in the case of amnesia just doesn't have because it's uh, it's old and it hasn't received a lot of development in uh, recent years and what about LFE, the least flavor Erlang, <laughs> yeah. the least flavored Erlang? Yeah, LFE is really cool. It's so uh, you know if you're a Lisper, then you you know you like powerful macros and you like uh, you know brackets, parentheses, and if you want a lot of parentheses, well, uh, <laughs> Lisp flavored Erlang is an interesting. It's a Lisp on top of Erlang that just it uses all the Erlang libraries, but it's Lisp syntax with Lisp macros. So it's um, it's very f it's fun to program in. You know, you can go do your uh, structure and interpretation of computer programs <laughs> stuff with uh, LFE, but and you get all of these cool properties of the Erlang ecosystem and the Erlang uh, virtual machine, all these distribution properties. So I think it's a really fun way to program. Uh, that that was invented by Robert Verding, one of the creators of Erlang, and he's also created Luerl, which is Lua on the beam, so the beam is the Erlang virtual machine. And then there's a whole bunch of other languages on the beam too, so like Elixir being the most famous. Um, so you can get those distributed features and fault tolerance, uh, Erlang libraries and uh, message passing and actor model semantics and pattern matching and stuff like that with a lot of different syntaxes with a lot of different styles of programming. So. Uh, I think that's pretty exciting. That's definitely a big area where Erlang is expanding, just being a platform for other languages. Uh, and so I'm really hopeful that Elixir can make programming a lot more enjoyable by, um, you know, uh, getting the Erlang uh, semantics to a much bigger audience and in much more domains, more than just super scalable backends, but I think it would be great for all kinds of things like GUI programming and, you know, well, websites, of course, and just, uh, you know, anything you can think of. Yeah, so I learned about Erlang because of Elixir, because I started doing some Elixir a couple of years ago, and it's really nice, like the community is really nice, the language is super cool. It's very fast, very performant compared to Ruby, because uh, I, I did a bunch of Ruby in the past. And it's nice because like the things that you need in Ruby, you don't need in Elixir. Like for example, in Ruby on Rails, you do a bunch of jobs, so you need delay job and you need a queue 
and you need some form of message passing thing and it's hard to do distributed and concurrent things in Ruby but in Elixir you you get everything for free because of Erlang so it's really nice to to be able to do that so er Erlang the power comes from Erlang but Elixir is a really nice tool like I, I really like it have you tried Elixir? Yeah, I've tried it, and yeah, it feels a lot like Erlang when you're programming Elixir. Uh, so uh, I'm, yeah, I'm really positive on Elixir. I hope that uh, it gains in a lot of popularity, and I can, you know, do do some projects in it. Um, let's say that someone decides to start trying Erlang, but then I feel like when you want to learn something specific it's always good to learn something in advance of that like before that so let's say what would be nice to spend some time before going straight to Erlang um, well I guess um, I, I think you could if you follow like Fred's Fred Hebert's book learn you some Erlang you could go straight to Erlang but what would be nice? Well, there's all, I, just, I guess it depends what you're doing, but there's all kinds of um, stuff, probably just for a pure ability to program, just for the pure ability to get something done. It would be a functional language like uh, Haskell um, be, or, or Elm, because the, just like the day-to-day -day of like, how do I do a loop that people who are are familiar with Haskell would would find that a lot more uh, natural in Erlang than somebody coming out of like C++. So uh, th that type of thing, like f the, f the functional paradigm as a whole, that is an important intro to Erlang uh, and maybe best taught outside of Erlang, outside of the Erlang community um, as sort of a prerequisite. Uh, like, you know, how do you, like, like you know, what's, what is map, what is reduce? How do you? What is recursion? How do you write a recursive algorithm? Those would be the. What What is a pure function? What is the side effect? Those types of concepts. I think that would be a, a really important prerequisite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because when you learn functional programming, you start thinking about side effects a lot because, like. When you have side effects, everything becomes harder, everything becomes uh, dangerous, you know? So do you think, yeah, it's a good, a good advice, like you should learn some functional programming anyway, even if you're not interested in Erlang. So do you have any books or recommendations about like functional programming or I don't know, how to think like a functional programmer or something? Well, I think the standard, I really like the sort of the, s the standard classics, like uh, you can watch those videos from the, from like the 80s <laughs> of uh, structure interpretation of computer programs from MIT with um, Adelson and uh, like, I, I don't know, I think those are a lot of, I think those are very enjoyable and uh, you can, you know, read, th read the book like that or the, the little scheme or stuff like that. I mean... Um, I mean, that's my only recommendation, really. I don't have anything um, more interesting than that. But I, I always really like those. And I also like, 
getting into the the computer itself so the operating questions about operating systems like questions about networking and uh, and then the programming language theory so um, maybe these things all lend themselves to one another but those are the those are the types of things that I that I like and that I um, like to learn from. So Stephanie was reading the structure and interpretation of computer computer programs. Can you comment on that? Hi. Yes. Uh, I was really enjoying it, but the problem is that I always having I always have something more urgent yeah. to study. So, uh, because of my work, right? And then I always have to stop. But I, I'm, I'm trying to focus on that for this second semester. This second semester, I'm not sure if I will able to do it. But I was really enjoying. It's, it's really different, but it kind of makes you feel more comfortable about working software in a general aspect. It's something that they were teaching in the 80s, but it's uh, still useful. So I, I really want to get back to that. I, I think that I went through the first chapter only, but yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's a good suggestion. Yeah, I, I think that all of those things, like from the 80s, you know, it survived now because it's it's teaching fundamentals that are universal, and that th that will apply no matter w no matter what you're doing in uh, any kind of programming. And uh, so I'm all about those fundamentals. And a lot of th these fundamentals were sort of best discovered um, quite a number of years ago in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes people just um, express them so clearly that um, that it's not going to be improved on. So. I think that the SICP, uh, as they call it, is you know mm -hmm. one one of those examples, just a great example of that. And you you always feel sort of enlightened after you work through some of that. Yeah, software development changed a lot in the last twenty years, I think, because back in the day, I think people focused more on the on the fundamentals and the basic tools that you needed to to know about, and you kind of have to build everything from scratch and nowadays uh, courses are more focused on learning the tools to get a job and it's fine like people need a job but it's nice also nice to learn the fundamentals and be able to like build something from scratch or understand how a tool works you know so so it's really nice to be able to maybe learn the fundamentals and, yeah. and and also the why of a certain tools uh, every tool has or it should have a reason why it's that way and not a different way and these reasons are coming back to human reasons because it's always humans interacting with the system so I think that you sh you can see a lot of different patterns and that and different approaches generic approaches that can get applied by different tools, putting different tools in certain categories. And those those categories of tools are good for certain things and they're good for certain reasons. And I think exploring all those reasons, I think is 
the m most productive thing because then you know when to use something or not to use something. You know, when you see a problem, you know, maybe you don't know exactly what tool you're going to use. Maybe you don't know you're going to use MySQL or Postgres or Amnesia, but maybe you know that this is a tool for something that deals with relations, that deals with data, how data relates to each other. And then you know, you know, there's, there's a whole class of tools, these relational databases, and they're all doing the same thing for the same reason, and then they're different in the details, but you can identify that class of problem, and using the right tool for the job will, will be more of a payoff, it'll be more productive than uh, any amount of, you know, working hard or or knowing your tool inside and out. So that's why I, some, sometimes people ask, uh, you know, if you had to learn one language, what would it be? If you had to learn one tool, what would it be? But I never say one thing. I think it should, I think that is, is completely missing it, I think. You don't need to learn one thing. You can learn many things, and, uh, and you should. And you never, I don't know, I never regret learning anything. I never say, like, I'm worse off for having <laughs> known a little bit about something. I mean, sometimes I stop, but... Uh, I, ne I never regret it. So you never regret learning any tool? Like maybe some tools you, you didn't really enjoy, but you don't regret anything. Well, I don't. I, uh, y yeah, exactly. So I, th I think like, you know, you learn how, how something works and you decide that, like that I decide not going to use it anymore because I, I don't like it or something something's better or I was using it for the wrong thing but I feel like it's still made it still taught me something about how to make good decisions and how to be be productive and and maybe it taught me when that tool would be well used and maybe someday I'll, I'll run into that situation or maybe if not that one that type of thing that class of tool so maybe I like f for example I think this has happened to me a lot I learn some type of tool and then I'll find out that you know it's just not implemented very well. It has a lot of problems, but it makes sense as a as a class of tool. Like it, the goal made sense. What they were doing made sense, but it just the implementation wasn't there. And then I know, okay, well I'm looking for that type of thing, just maybe a better implementation. And then I I feel like I could be on the lookout for that. So I think that um, uh, you know it's. it's learning more tools is is just better and I think it, it it pays off and well and the other thing is like I, I just really believe that being productive in programming is about making good decisions it's not about typing as fast as possible or or just getting things done it's about the quality of the decision and that means you, you need to have reasons for decisions and that uh, like justifications and and always trade-offs between all the different options though so, so like when I can I try to compile a bunch of options and really get into the the concepts behind them and uh, so that's my approach so when you want to choose a language or solve a problem how, how do you decide like do you spend some time thinking about the problem doing some investigation and yeah I think well, right now, I, I want to break things down into questions of essential complexity at a, um, at a, th a theory level. So uh, just pure, purely as an abstract thing, like what kind of problem is this? Is this a data problem? Is it an algorithms problem? Um, is it, uh, you know, 
what is what is the core issue and then the, and then has it been solved before or what other approaches have people taken how does it differ from those so i mean um i think that you get a lot of value by working through things like that uh because it saves so much time later on and uh, it definitely takes uh, practice and and reading uh, to be able to classify these things or know know what's come before you but um, I always um, find that it, it really pays off to learn about sort of the history I mean I just sort of look at it as history of the people who did work before before we did and what they've already learned what they've already um, tried and that's why you know trying uh, if you learn that a certain thing was tried and it didn't work well that's very very useful so you have you kind of have this philosophical method of software development yeah. right so you kind of investigate the problem that you have and you can you ask questions and then you kind of challenge your assumptions a little bit yeah 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 i, I so i did a, you know a lot of philosophy and that was a big passion for a long time so and I think what it what I came out of that is um, well I, I do think you can find reasons for things and that's what philosophy is all about asking why a whole bunch of times uh, but also I think that there's a human component to this that uh, a lot of programmers that uh, I, I encounter I think they don't realize that just how human programming is it's there's a lot of sort of humanities like there's not a lot of hard science or stuff like that it's a lot of you know very abstract theory and it's it's heavily involved with how people think and how people work together how people communicate especially communication so there's a sort of a liberal art to programming and um and so i i apply a lot of stuff for my humanities education to programming um, being clear about things about your code, for example, but also um, one like the sort of the hermeneutic approach, as they say, like asking the types of questions that you ask and working hard to f to come up with good questions, and then um, also examining the history of ideas, the history of a, a group. So, uh, a, a software isn't just a bunch of bits. It's also a story of the people that built it and what they were thinking and why they built it, how they, what they were trying to solve, how they got onto it. And so I want to know all those things. Like when I learned about something, I want to know who built it, why they built it, what they were thinking, and the development that happened. Because it always is that, you know, they, it's right in the name, developer. So it develops and changes over time. So I have this sort of like almost like Hegelian uh, <laughs> view of software as this. Um, process as understanding the whole process of how it changes over time and that's um, how I try to approach all these problems so it's it's open-ended but also uh, directed was more I'm really curious to know more about your path to software because you said that you learn um, still young and then and then you went like to psychology or and philosophy and then you went to software well, I was always um, a programmer. Um, um, I got a, a computer. My dad bought me a computer when I was very young, and 
Um, so I most, mostly played video games, but <laughs> also did programming. So I was interested in programming. Like how, like I just remember looking at uh, Doom and thinking like, how did they make this? This is amazing. Like how did they do this? And so then I wanted to understand how they did it. And I just looked into that, you know, how do you construct software? What is going on there? And I was really interested in uh, like physics and math, stuff like that too, throughout high school. And uh, I started, so I went right, right out of high school, I went into computer science degree. Um, and then um, uh, in, uh, in university, uh, I started to become disenchanted with the object-oriented Java paradigm that ruled everything. <laughs> And uh, I was not having very much fun, so I switched to topics that I thought were a lot more fun, like uh, mm. psychology and philosophy and um, d you know humanities and, and even like math and stuff like that. So I sort of was was lucky to be able to uh, study all of these very interesting things and and then come back to computer programming later. Mm. Uh, again, I, I say although I never I never left it. I mean, I always. Mm was programming even if it wasn't my you know um, main focus is there something from psychology that you use in <laughs> programming because there's a human side to software development like you said so yeah i think i think there is you know i mean this is, sounds so nerdy but when i went into psychology i actually thought like i like i, I was thinking like this the way that these software development is happening is so anti-human <laughs> at least it was in my in my program and I felt like it was um, and I felt like that we should be able to discover the right kinds of abstractions or controls or ways of doing things that conform to the way that people work because I, I had this idea that like the pro the programming language itself or the programming system or tools should be tailored to the human and it, I mean I'm not the first one to think of this uh, like I think you know Donald Newth talks about this and so so I I wanted one of the reasons I went to psychology was because I wanted to figure out what that would be uh, so uh, even my reason for for going into that was related to uh, computer programming not my only reason but one of them and and so I've have thought a lot about it like what what's the right level of abstraction what's the right kind of of uh tool like what you know if you think about I, 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 a lot of the time i sort of analogize programming tools to traditional tools uh like in construction work for example like why is a hammer the way it is and you know how did that come about well the answer is that is perfectly shaped to the human body uh, and also to the tasks that are being used, but every everything is is shaped like why is a brick the size it is? It's it's so that it can be carried, uh, and this applies to all of those things. And so I want to implement that in the software uh, place so that people can make do better things, just do things that are more amazing and more um, you know more impressive and. Uh, make everything, make software that's really cool and really great and has tons of features and that people love, so. Do you ever ask that question, like, 
why is this program shaped the way it is? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it should be like a hammer, but it's more like uh, <laughs> something <laughs> without shape, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, all all the time. Yeah, I, I, and I I think like one one concept that um, I found really helpful is to think about the operator. So you've got the creator of the software, then you've got the user, and then you have the operator. And the operator is someone who it's not. It's not the user, but it's someone who's maybe administrating the system, or they're maybe they're debugging it, or um, or maybe they're like um, sort of a customer service or something. They have a different role in the system that's other than the user. And then you think so. So I analogize it to uh, uh, you know construction. So you you have an operator of some heavy equipment, and they have a bunch of dials. They have a a lever and a bunch of buttons and a screen, and they have. Uh, uh, a wheel, and so what? What are the software analogies of these, and what are the roles, and what kind of things do they need at their fingertips so that they can use? So it's it's a, it's the melding of human and machine that's really where really like all the magic happens, and that's the part that um, I think is really fascinating. And uh, and this the systems are designed to be used by humans, but they. They could be designed to be more intentionally used, and not just by the user of a system, but by the developers as well, because uh, you have to, when you're debugging your system, you're operating your system, or when you're deploying it, or you're just trying to inspect what's going on. So I think about building myself or whoever's doing that operator tools as well. So I think I, I think the concept of operator is underused. It's maybe it's something related to like user experience because we talk a lot about the user, the client and how the user is going to interact with the software, but no one talks about how the programmer yeah. uh, interacts with his tools or his his software, you know. Yeah. And s it's like some some tools are very nice for that like ruby for example is made for programmer happiness right know? but some other tools are like hard on the developer you know they're not made for humans to yeah. use you know but it's an interesting idea like user experience applied to the developer himself and the operators which are not developers but yeah, so I try to think of all the software systems. A lot of people, I, I find they think about automation, so they're always thinking, you know, how do we remove the human from the loop? But I think it's better to put the human in the loop and give them leverage, give them great tools that do big things that they can, op they can use with their brain. So I want to put the brains into the system and give them buttons and wheels and stuff instead of trying to replace them with a robot. And I think uh, a lot of people they're aiming for a system that won't have any humans in it, so they don't maybe they don't think about somebody who has to sort of operate it, or maybe they don't even think about the programmers who are going to still be programming it forever. Usually, these systems don't very rarely get left behind. So, well, they get left behind, but when they're still running, you still have someone maintaining it. So we've got to think about the maintainers. So I think the Ruby approach is is uh, amazing and uh, the best the best way it really encapsulates everything else developer happiness yeah something that makes me a little angry sometimes is people saying bad things about ruby 
because I know Ruby is not the fastest programming language or anything but it's very nice to work with like it's very nice to work with the community is nice Elixir is a little like that too so it's made for humans but then people that say that's the bad stuff about uh, Ruby usually they like some tools that are not very nice like some mm -hmm. hard tools like they're hard to use hard to under understand they don't make you happy you know so I think it would be nice if all of the programming languages were a little more focused on making developers happy and more productive yeah I, I have this uh, theory maybe it's a bit uh, overly psychological but I feel like some some programmers they want a language that will punish them that <laughs> they're they're, they're uh, a masochist and <laughs> so they're not looking they don't want to be happy or what makes them happy is to suffer <laughs> and so then they look for something that is hard just because it's hard or uh, I think I think that happens, but maybe I'm being too Freudian. <laughs> but do you think that this also happens because some people don't want software to be something that everyone can do? It's like, oh, this is really hard. You know, this is not for you. This is just for me. I can handle this, not you. Do you also think that happens because of this? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I just, I think people maybe um, worried that you know if everyone can do it then they aren't uh, special anymore mm -hmm. um, but I, I mean I think that's kind of maybe missing what's already happened which is everybody does use software now uh, one way or another because um, you know the pro pro you don't have to be typing in text characters to be programming I mean there's mm -hmm. uh, all of the different tools of operating software are a type of programming. It all requires certain types of logic, for example, or sequential thinking. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, e even uh, the stuff that everybody does now, uh, it is a, like I would say it is a, a type of programming in that they are, they are controlling a computer to do a specific outcome directly and their, it's their inputs that determine what it does. So it's, it doesn't have to be text. And I, I mean, you have visual systems that are programming too that uh, aren't text. I mean, I think text isn't going anywhere. I think that's the most powerful way to control a computer. But um, from that extremely powerful interface, I mean, we can do a lot to make it uh, something that's more fun and that you can just get a lot more done in less time, that more people can uh, do even if it programming isn't their you know main thing is there something else you want to share with the audience yeah if it interests you you should uh, you should don't be don't be scared it's it's easier than you think um, but uh, you don't you'll have no idea really until you until you try and uh, just go read Fred's book and it's it's free on the internet learn you some Erlang for greats good and very gentle introduction and um, I think that even if you don't use it just read a few chapters you'll be uh, you'll feel enlightened thank you very much for coming Brian it was really interesting the, the talk was really interesting so thanks again thanks for having me it's always great to talk to you and I'm um, very glad to be on your show <laughs> thank you I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you learned something new today and you should learn Erlang 
So see you next time on hexdevs.com.